Hey, podcast fans, this is Chris Webster, founder of the APN, and I just want to thank you for downloading this episode. Please consider becoming a member of the APN if you're not already and helping us make more great shows and get them out to the world. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash members or click the link in the show notes. On to the show. Hey, Amber, remember how you and I are archaeologists? I do. I do remember that. Yeah. Okay. Well, I want to tell you about a really good thing for archaeologists to do, which is to become a member of the archaeology division of the American Anthropological Association. But why would I, an archaeologist, want to do that? For lots of reasons. For one, as soon as you join, boom, you're connected to a huge network of scholars who all want to make contributions to archaeology and anthropology. Plus, it shows that you're really committed to four-field anthropology, and that looks really good on a CV. What about information? Can yep. I access it? You sure can. You get access to the Anthrosource portal, which is a hub for tons of anthropology and archaeology journals. Okay. So what you're saying is whether you're a new archaeology or anthropology student or you're an established scholar or anywhere in between, you can dig deeper into the field by joining the archaeology division of the American Anthropological Association. So I guess I'm going to go to add... Dot .americananthro.org to learn more about this. Yep, that's ad, ad dot .americananthro.org. Welcome to The Dirt, a podcast about archaeology, anthropology, and our shared human past. I'm Anna. And I'm Amber. And congratulations. You lucky ducks get to hear about ancient Mesopotamia this week. Well, we were going to get here sooner or later. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> no, a, a peek behind the curtain. The script says appropriate response <laughs> i guess i guess that was what was deemed an appropriate response uh, before we get to that good stuff though we've got a quick patreon shout out so patreon <laughs> we've got a quick patreon shout out Thank i don't know you. how to say it i hear patreon. people say patreon no i think it should be patreon like with a omega we've got a patreon a shout out to patreon um God. Bonjour. Uh, Bonjour. <laughs> Thank you to Kara for your generous support of the show. And remember, if you like the dirt, you can support us in a lot of ways. You can go to patreon.com slash the dirt podcast and throw us a couple of bucks a month. You can sponsor your very own episode. You can leave a review of the show on the Apple podcast app. You could tell every person you meet about us. Do you have social anxiety? We are a great icebreaker. Whatever you do, thank you so much to all of you who support the show and all of you who listen. Yes. Thank you. Now that we have our thank yous aside... <laughs> Let's get into it. This week, our story begins in the third millennium BCE. We are currently in the third millennium CE. Wind it back to about the 26th century BCE. Okay. So if you've never... What? Okay, I got it. The 26th century Mm -hmm. in the third millennium millennium. Mm -hmm. BCE. Mm -hmm. So if you've never been to Mesopotamia in the third millennium BCE... Don't worry, because I 
I'm a pretty good tour guide, if I do say so I love, myself. Uh, you, I love when when we do episodes where you know lots of things because I always learn a lot, but I'm especially excited for this one because I get to relearn things that I learned literally while sitting next to you in class. Did, did you see that, that, that I shared? Fallen out of my head. I, that I shared the syllabus. I did. From I didn't 2005. Look at it. <laughs> I, sure, I sure did see it, but I did not look at it. <laughs> Okay. Ugh. Okay. So take me to third millennium BCE Mesopotamia. Yes. If you were in the city state of Ur 5,000 and some years ago, you would not self identify as Mesopotamian. You so, don't know my life. Wait, no. I, well, I know this much about it. Um, if when they send out the census, you would not tick that box because that box okay. wouldn't exist. Um, so the name Mesopotamia comes from Greek. Um, and the two parts of it are meso, meaning middle or between, and potamos, meaning river. Meaning, so not, it's not sitting in the middle of a river. No. So <laughs> it means the place between the rivers and specifically two rivers, those rivers being the Euphrates to the southwest and the Tigris to the northeast, which if you saw this draft of the script an hour ago... I had that wrong. I didn't catch it because I got cocky. And then I was like, oh, I know. And then I looked and I was like, nope, you do not know. Um, (laughs) Hey, we we do our research. We just, well, I have known and now know again. Um, So the term Mesopotamia, uh, you know, with Greek, they didn't speak Greek there. What's up with that? Um, It appears in the Septuagint. Sounds right to me. Okay. The Septuagint, being, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so it's a literal translation of the word Naharaim, mm-hmm. which means lands of rivers. Okay. So it's sort of like the rivery place. Yep. And then, so so that's that's why it's there. So it seems to have originally meant the land east of the Euphrates in eastern syria so like greater syria like old timey mm-hmm. syria gotcha yeah um but today mesopotamia refers to eastern syria northern saudi arabia kuwait and all but the most deserty parts of iraq southeastern turkey and iran west of the zagros which isn't much of iran but it's still a bit of iran um that's yeah. in mesopotamia um, so Mesopotamia stops being Mesopotamia around the arrival and spread of Islam and extends back to the earliest signs of social complexity, depending on who you ask. Today, you're asking us. And so specific, we are specifically, <laughs> specifically talking you're asking about Amber. <laughs> you're asking Amber. Um, and so I'm going to talk to you about the third millennium BCE. And I'm specifically talking about the space between the Tigris and Euphrates, where they're quite close together, um, very near to where they dump into the Gulf. Um, and that's east of what is today the city of Basra in Iraq. Okay. So it's there in the in like the Delta region. So in this period, uh, known as the early dynastic period, this corner of Western Asia features many independent, interconnected, and sometimes warring city-states. Um, and so a city state is sort of a, a central urban core that has like a, a, a temple palace complex. And then there's the hinterland around it, which is usually where there's some kind of agriculture happening to support it. So that's what a city state is. Um, so it's not like 
the Vatican City, like not city state <laughs> in that sense. Okay. Um, Noted. So at this, so by the early dynastic period, writing's really come into its own by now, and there's an extensive bureaucracy emerging. So they, and they so can really they can, get into those lists. Oh God, they love a list. They love a good receipt, also. Oh. Um, and so each of these city states would have a patron deity, um, and so like Marduk is the patron deity of Babylon. Like, and okay. so that just like, that's something that like comes up over and over and over, over the next 3000 years from this two and a half thousand years from this point. Okay. So, you know, you've got, so each of these city states have a patron deity and a, and a very large temple dedicated to worship of that deity deity. So it's like the sort of heart of worship for them. Um, and so both, the temple itself and the population of the city and the hinterland around it would be ruled by either an NC who is a priestly governor um, or a Lugal, which is Sumerian for big man, big man, big man. Um, In either case, they were both a political and a religious leader. And I'm not going to get into that. Um, So, at any point during this period, any one of the more than a dozen Sumerian city-states would be more powerful than the others, and supremacy passed around from one city to another periodically. Um, and so these shifts and the the kings among whom it shifted are recorded in a text known as the Sumerian King List, which exists in a couple different versions. Um, and so the reason why it's in a couple different versions from a couple different places because is because texts like this would be written by... Um, written in cuneiform on tablets and so that's done by pressing the tip of a stylus so it's made of a reed so it's sort of like mm-hmm. thicker on one side than the other makes a um, wedge and so you yeah it, it, so cuneiform means wedge shape so that's what that is um and so you press the end of the the stylus into the soft clay to create patterns of short lines and those patterns of short lines become um the the signs um and so that's how you write, and it's a very specific skill, both reading and copying, and because it's very tedious, and because there are lots of little little lines that go into right. it, and so um, this these could be co- these could be duplicated um, because it's being replicated for tr- use in another person's library, mm. or. It's used for homework. So you see things that have errors and things because um, these are homework for scribal students. And so that's why you have a lot of of these lists and dictionaries and things because for most of the time Sumerian language is used, um, nobody understands Sumerian. But this would also – because it's a list, that's fun. And so that's people love love copying them because they're there's repetition. Mm-hmm. So it's it's easier mm-hmm. and it's easier to translate if you're learning it in the third millennium CE. <laughs> um, and so these lists include all the kings of these city states, including real people and their reigns and the, the lengths of their reigns, mm-hmm. back to the antediluvian kings, who are the kings that ruled before the great flood, the the Noah one. I've heard of it. Um, and they had reigns of like twenty thousand years. So. So it's Less really interesting. Real, no, but still no cool. but it's very interesting that there are that that you have this tradition. Mm-hmm. And so you have a tradition that um 
encompasses both the present and the mythic past. No, that's um, super cool. And then, just and then you know, and so the period, what we'll be talking about in a few minutes, is roughly contemporaneous when Sumerian writing would like to say that Gilgamesh was running his city state. Okay. So so the lines are very blurred there. Um, and so some of these cities you might have heard of. Uh, the average person may have heard of. Um, so there's Uruk, which is an even more ancient city, and that's the one that Gilgamesh was was king of, um, you know, the guy with the epic. Mm-hmm. Um, and Uruk you may have also heard of because it is Iraq. Got it. It's the same word. Yeah. Yep, same word. Very cool. Um, Babylon really pops off later on. Yeah, I've heard of that um, too. A lot of people hear that. <laughs> Sumer itself was a city state. Remember from my previous finger wagging, Sumeria, not a thing. Um, Sumerian remember is a also language. From my excellent pun about five minutes ago. Yeah, Sumer is a thing. Um, so <laughs> Sumerian is the language, and Sumer is an Akkadian word. It's not even Sumerian. Whoa. So it's not, yeah, right? So Sumerians referred to themselves as the black-headed people. Like, which they had dark hair? Or like, I would assume very so. clogged pores? No, yeah, I would assume, <laughs> I, yeah. Um, and, um, which like, okay, sure. fine. Um, and then the term that they, the phrase that they used to describe where they were from is the land of noble kings. Okay. Which, humble brag. Mm-hmm. Um, and so also there's Akkad, which became the heart of what is arguably the world's first empire, um, the Akkadian Empire, mm-hmm. eh, um, headed up by our boy Sargon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the Akkadian Empire begins and the early dynastic period ends. So that's what ends the early dynastic period because okay. you have these dynasties and then you've got an empire and then it kind of falls apart and then you got some more dynasties. Okay. Um, and uh, we don't know where Akkad is. Not yet. Don't know where it is. And then there's Or. Or, or, or the what? Ca- <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, or of the Chaldees. That's, um, so that's where the biblical Abraham is from. Yeah, Chaldean. So, that's the same thing, right? He was a Chaldean. Yeah. He was a Chaldean, and the Chaldeans are in southern Iraq. Right. They are from Ur. Well, they're also still from southern Iraq. Yes, yes, I know, but (laughs) we're talking about the city of Ur. Yeah, and if you've never heard of it, strap in, because Anna, you're going to take us to our next section, (laughs) which I'm calling Find Ors, Keep Ors. (laughs) So good. I know, right? I kept that one to myself all week. Oh, so <laughs> proud of you. Okay. Thank you. Fast forward to the end of the second millennium CE. To be exact, we are in 1922. Arguably the golden age of archaeology. I mean, the golden age of shiny archaeology. Not necessarily the golden age of archaeology being done methodologically. Well, simply. is the golden age ever used to refer to things being done like actually ethically or... All right. or That is a very fair point. Okay, so this was the golden age of archaeology when British people previously familiar with this corner of the world through military service during World War I returned to slake their curiosity as the relationship between Britain and what was then becoming Iraq was in flux. So we are talking about the magnificently named Sir Leonard Woolley. 
And Woolley is considered to be one of the first modern archaeologists since he, he did methodically excavate, he recorded extensive notes, and he used those two things to try and recreate what ancient life was like. If you're an Agatha Christie fan, you may also be familiar with Sir Leonard um, because Agatha Christie was present at the excavations at Ur, which then served as the inspiration for her book Murder in Mesopotamia, in which a character based on a lady everyone thought was awful gets murdered in Mesopotamia. The excavations at Ur were a joint project between the University of Pennsylvania, with whom Woolley had collaborated previously, and the British Museum. There were uh, three phases of excavation. Woolley started the excavations at Ur in early November 1922. After digging two initial trial trenches, Woolley spent his first five digging seasons focusing on the high mound with its ziggurat, which is a, a stepped pyramid, and public buildings within Oh, uh, no. Is it? I'm, I know I'm pronouncing it wrong when I say Nebuchadnezzar. How do I say it right again? I know or it's... Or Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. Um, I think it's... Isn't it Nabu... Nabu Kudur Utsur. Yes! Okay. I just wanted you to have that moment. Okay. But <laughs> I I'm, got it. I, I, I'm going to say Nebuchadnezzar. Um, That's fine. Yeah. So public buildings within uh, Nebuchadnezzar's Temenos, which is the enclosure wall. In the second half of the 1920s, Woolley shifted Yeah, his- so that's like, I'm sorry, that's way, way later. So Nebuchadnezzar is um, mid-first millennium BCE. Right, yes. Way so later. This, is, this is later because this is a tell site, so there are layers of occupation. Right, so a tell is... So we're is, going back in time. A tell is essentially a mound where um, different groups of people have lived for thousands and thousands of years and, and built up over and over and over each other. Um, so it's a it's a big old layer cake of archaeology, and that's that's what it is. So in the second half of the 1920s, Woolley shifted his primary focus to the cemetery. In less than three months in 1927, as you would expect in a cemetery maybe, he uncovered some 600 burials, including one rich tomb, which is referred to as PG-580, that contained many gold implements. In the next two seasons, he uncovered hundreds of additional burials, 454 in the 1928-29 season and 350 in 1929 through 1930. Um, And this includes something that we're going to touch on quite a bit today, the Great Death Pit. (laughs) In the last few seasons, Woolley focused on investigating the prehistory of Ur with the silt flood layer. Um, is it the flood? The the flood? Yeah, he thought he found the flood. Yeah, okay, but he found a flood. Re- remember, remember, like the antediluvian kings. No, I know, I do, I do. So there, there were I was the there fu- for that. yeah. So right, and so this is he's like found it. <laughs> okay, well, <That's- laughs> I did it. We should stop now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> and indeed he did because his last season ended in February 1934. Yeah, and so um, Woolley's focus was largely on those good, good burials and the Mm. good, good goodies Mm, they mm. got in them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, because he didn't necessarily focus on much else, we shall also focus on the burials. (laughs) Yes. Um, (laughs) And sort of both what was in them and then what has come of what is in them. So I am going to read a little bit of... <laughs> that giant book in front of you. <laughs> the Cultural Atlas of Mesopotamia and the Ancient Near East, um, which was is by Michael Rofe and was 
one of the textbooks for my baby archaeology class. Is that like a Luristan bronze thing on the... No, that's a thing from Ore. Oh, that makes it's <laughs> It's a tiny little box on my screen. It's the ram in the thicket. I'm... I, all I saw was Which like, I, it looked um, like a fork. I don't know. Anna wrote a paper on Loristan bronzes from Iran once. That's, we were in that class together. I didn't, I don't remember doing particularly well on that paper. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was really interesting, so, though. It was, no, super interesting. Um, so, ahem, Professor Roof says, the Royal Cemetery is one of the most spectacular archaeological finds to date. Full stop. <laughs> um that's your and, opinion, sir. <laughs> the Royal Cemetery is one of the most spectacular archaeological finds to date. In most of the graves, the body has been laid on its side, wrapped in a mat or enclosed in a coffin at the bottom of a vertical shaft. Alongside each body were personal possessions, jewelry, a dagger, and perhaps a cylinder seal. The cylinder seals are the ones that have the, um, they'll have, um, figural images or like writing and you roll them across the outside mm-hmm. of uh, the envelope that you have, uh, the clay that you have um, kind of working as an envelope around your, t- um, your cuneiform tablet and you roll it across and it works as like a signature, but also something that's tamper evident mm-hmm. and they're usually personal. The grave also contained pottery, stone, or metal vessels, which might have held food and drink, as well as weapons and makeup paints and cockle shells, together (laughs) with the necessary tools for applying them. Similar graves have been found at Abu Salavih, Kish, and Khafaja, which are just other places in southern Mesopotamia. Okay. Um, However, 17 graves were unusual, both in their construction and in the wealth of goods that they held. Some were of stone or mud brick, some had several chambers, and some had vaults. Most of these graves have been robbed Vault. in ancient times. To- <laughs> uh, had been robbed in ancient times, but even so, even so, what remained was extraordinary, and particularly so in those in those tombs that were found intact. In some of the royal tombs, this is capital R, capital T. Mm-hmm. The principal occupant had evidently been accompanied to the netherworld by dozens of attendants who had been slaughtered during the funeral rites. Yeah, we'll get to that. One tomb was placed almost exactly above another. So probably someone was buried on top of somebody else, probably on purpose or maybe not. No. Or maybe they just like happened to dig in the same place. Like it's, no, I just would have thought it's a statement, but Hey, um, no, I think one of them like kind of cut into it. Oh, but I don't, I don't know. He was, but the first modern archaeologist. The lower one, which Wooly called the King's Grave, had a sloping passageway leading down. At the foot of the ramp were the skeletons of six soldiers wearing copper helmets and armed with copper spheres. Farther along were the remains of two four-wheeled wagons, each pulled by three oxen. The reins had been made out of lapis lazuli beads and passed through silver rings decorated with statues of oxen. Exhibit. I heard you like oxen, (laughs) so I put some oxen on your oxen. (laughs) Beyond the wagons, there were more than 50 male and female skeletons. The remains of two liars were found next to a group of women. Crowded tomb. Yeah. Um, And also, um, these were were determined to be male and female skeletons, Mm -hmm. like, during the initial excavations. Mm -hmm. So, um, So, question mark. So... They may not have been sexed on biological 
characteristics, but rather on material goods. Who had daggers and who had pretty pink bows bows. in their hair. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, One of the lyres was decorated with a gold and lapis lazuli bull's head and a shell inlay showing animals playing musical instruments, like an early illustration to one of Aesop's fables, (laughs) which is a really... um, irresponsible thing to put in this book because it has nothing to do with Aesop's fables. He's he's Greek. (laughs) The tomb chamber had been built of stone with brick vaulting. There, there, the remains of several bodies were found and copper and silver models of boats of the same type as those used by the Marsh Arabs of Southern Iraq today. Marsh Arabs? Um, yeah. So these are, um, it's a population that lived in the, um, in the marshy, like Shatala Arab area, that were uh, the target of a genocide by Saddam Hussein. Yeah, I knew this it. book was published in 1990. Yeah, okay, okay, okay. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Most of the contents of the tomb chamber, however, had been removed by robbers who had entered through a hole in the roof from a second royal tomb directly above. Da, da, this had a da, similar da, layout da, to that da, of the king's da, grave, da, da, da. but the tomb chamber and outer pit had not been looted. Five bodies lay on the ramp before a wooden sledge ornamented with gold and silver lions and bulls heads with mosaics of lapis lazuli and shell. Attached to the sledge were two oxen whose reins passed through a silver ring decorated with finely modeled electrum donkey. Electrum donkey is my (laughs) new discotheque (laughs) concept pop up. Um, Hmm. Near the sledge were a gaming board and vessels made of gold, silver, copper, obsidian, lapis lazuli, alabaster, and marble. In the middle of these objects was a large wooden box decorated with mosaic and had been placed over the hole in the ceiling of the chamber of the king's grave. Oh, it was intentional. Okay. I was thinking of a different one. There are a lot of burials. Yeah. He uncovered like (laughs) more than 300 every single season or phase. Um, yeah, so so there was a there was a um, escape hatch into the chamber of the king's grave. Probably the builders of the later, later tomb had found the earlier tomb chamber and looted it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in the tomb chamber of the later tomb, the body of a woman lay on a wooden bier, together with her two servants. Near the woman's right shoulder, a lapis lazuli cylinder seal showing a banquet scene bore the inscription, Puabi, queen. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's um, really nice when it just, it's a label. It's like her email signature. Yeah. Um, Puabi had been buried dressed in all her finery, including a gold headdress. A second headdress found near the body consisted of a backing strip onto which had been sewn thousands of tiny lapis lazuli beads. And on top of these were fixed small gold figures of stags, gazelles, Bulls and goats separated by plant motifs. That's how she goes from daytime to nighttime. Yes. <laughs> this is my nighttime headdress. Um, another tomb chamber had been robbed, but the outer area, called by Wooly the Great Death Pit, was preserved and in, sp- in a space measuring less than nine by eight meters, no fewer than 74 willing victims had been sacrificed. Six soldiers were stationed near the ramp. Four female physicians. No. 
Female musicians were found. <laughs> I was just going to say, wow. You need some doctors. Four female musicians were found near their lyres, of which one instrument had a gold bearded bull's head, and another a silver cow's head, and a third a silver stag's head. A further 64 women lay in orderly rows. About their necks, they had chokers of lapis lazuli and gold, as well as other jewelry, and they wore large crescent shaped gold earrings and simplified version of Puabi's headdress. 28 of the women had gold hair ribbons and the rest silver. One unfortunate woman still had her hair ribbon rolled up. Evidently, she had not had time to put on a ribbon, having arrived late at her own funeral. That's an interpretation. Shall we talk about some of the things that were yeah, in that, that death I pit? Thought was a, that was a fun... It was a cool visual. Fun intro. Yeah. Before I we get things th- straight from the ram in the thicket's mouth. Meh. So, yeah, so let's talk about some of the stuff that was in those things, the non-human stuff. Mm-hmm. Now we're going to talk about the human stuff, too, but first things first. Um, so the first thing we're going to talk about is called the standard of Ur, and I feel very validated now because I didn't, you know, I, as listeners may have gleaned, I have an incomplete memory of the materials from Ur, and I always thought it was dumb when it was called a standard because it's a box and a standard is something that you lift over your head in battle, and it just seemed dumb that it would be a big box. See, I had no idea what a standard was, oh. and so I was like, cool. Oh, yeah. No, it... Uh, so you got to go in knowing nothing. <laughs> well, there was my mistake. Dang. Okay, well, the standard of Ur is a small trapezoidal box. It's 8.5 inches high by 19.5 inches long, um, whose two sides and end panels are covered with figurative and geometric mosaics made of pieces of shell, lapis lazuli, and red limestone set into bitumen. It was found near a soldier whom Willie thought had carried it on a long pole as the royal emblem of a king. Um, it's actually more likely to have been the sound box for a musical instrument. That makes so much more sense to me. Um, but when Willie found it, he gave it the name The Standard, um, and that is still used. It's currently, it resides at the British Museum, and you've seen it with your face, huh? Yeah. Well, I saw it specifically with my eyes. Yeah. Um, and it's a straight-up box. Yeah, it's a box. Pretty dumb that he thought it was carried as the royal emblem of the king, because mm. if you look at it, you wouldn't it's be a able box to... with a, it's a box with a comic strip on it. Yeah, I mean, and you also like a beautiful one that's like very the 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 craftsmanship done. is amazing. Yeah. But yeah, like the idea that you would be able to see it from yards and yards away in battle and be like, ah, yes, is is very silly. Anyway, the the mosaics on the standard, not a standard, depict life in early Mesopotamia. You can call it the box if you want. <laughs> I'm over it. The two sides are dubbed the war side and the peace side, um, and they tell a story that you read from bottom to top. So they're in a series of rows or registers, and and you kind of make your way up, and it tells the story. So the top register on each side depicts a king, and we know that because he's larger in scale than the other figures. The standard shows... Big man! Big man! Lugal! Lugal! The standard shows the two most important roles of an early Mesopotamian ruler the warrior who protected the people and secured access to water and natural resources, and the leader who served as an intermediary between the people and the gods. So let's talk about the war side first. 
Um, it's one of the earliest known representations of a Sumerian army engaged in what is believed to be a border skirmish and also its aftermath, because remember, this is a, a story, so there's some there's a time, a narrative element. The war panel shows the king in the middle of the top register, standing taller than any other figure, Lugal, with his head projecting out of the frame to emphasize his supreme status. I'm so big, See, I don't fit ask, in this panel. We should ask our um, oh, King our Paul. Patron. Yeah, King Paul. King Paul, do you does your head stick out of stuff? It's a device also used on on the peace panel. The king stands in front of his bodyguard and a four wheeled chariot which uh, the chariot's drawn by a team of some sort of equids. And I, I just thought that was funny, but, but horses didn't get there until uh, the second millennium BCE. So we don't know if they were horses for sure. They could be um, also domestic asses, donkeys, or onagers. That's how you say it? Onagers, yeah. Onagers? I, w- I always thought it was onager, but that might be a book. Huh. That's onagen. Okay, never mind. (laughs) The king faces a row of prisoners, all of whom are portrayed as naked, bound, and injured, with large bleeding gashes on their chests and thighs, um, which I read was sort of a a standard um, device, like a a motif of depicting like defeated captives. They like you got you get one big gash here, you get one here. Like you you hurt here and you hurt here, and then it's followed by a depiction of enemies being captured and led away. The soldiers are shown wearing leather cloaks and helmets, and actual examples of that sort of helmet that is depicted in the mosaic were found in the same tomb. So that's helpful. The nudity of the captive and dead enemies was probably not meant to depict literally how they appeared in real life, <laughs> okay, but was more likely to have been symbolic and associated with a Mesopotamian belief that linked death with nakedness. And this is some Zainab Bahrani stuff. And like, I love her work. <laughs> because it is so heavy it's just like oh man oh boy well Zainab Bahrani but yeah there's a visual metaphor yeah because because you know humans wear clothes right dead and so dead things are no longer human or or things that are are subjugated Mm. Mm -hmm. or like rendered Mm. I see I see I see oh yeah that is heavy Okay, well... um, It gets heavier. Oh, boy. The peace side portrays a banquet scene. The king, again, appears in the upper register, taller than it, again, sitting on a carved stool on the left-hand side. He's faced by six other seated participants, each holding a cup raised in his right hand. They are attended by various other figures, including a long-haired individual, possibly a singer, who accompanies a lyrist, which is not a professional teller of tall tales it's someone who's playing a lyre which is a kind of harp in the middle register bald-headed figures wearing skirts with fringes parade animals fish and other goods perhaps bringing them to the feast the bottom register shows a series of figures dressed and quaffed in a different way from those above carrying produce in shoulder bags or backpacks or leading equids by ropes attached to nose rings so this is uh, basically Uh, It's a wooden box with metal inlay and um, inlay of lapis lazuli and stone. And it's just very, it's really exquisite. The harps that were found in the royal tombs of Ur um, were were wooden, made of wood. Um, And so Wooly took casts of them, of the deteriorated wood, before he excavated it out because 
that would it wasn't holding gone. shape anymore it was just like yeah, it splinters. was not gonna yeah um and so the original versions like the original uh wooden string instruments found at ore were richly decorated or just like the box the standard of ore they were overlaid with gold silver copper lapis lazuli mother of pearl um or other <laughs> non-wood materials um that didn't deteriorate right so you sort of had the all the stuff that was on the wood with no wood under it and so when the ceilings of the ancient tombs fell in some of the instruments collapsed together so badly that it was difficult to sort out which pieces went with which yeah yeah um and so um the archaeologists at um the british museum and the penn museum um, and the researchers thereafter spent years and years and years and years and years trying to sort it out. Um, and they think they have correctly separated the different and distinct musical instruments and improved their assessments of the original sizes. They have a right. better sense of yeah. what they actually look like. Instead of and just so like they a have jumble of parts. Yeah. because they And so now they have concrete evidence that um, can be used to replicate the those very unique lyres and harps. Um, and so part of what informed that is that there's about um, there's a ton of information about what music was like. Remember I that I love this so much. My little music nerd heart is going pitter pat. Do you, do you remember that that song I played for you? <laughs> that song that we shared on. I, I do. God, so uh, it, it's it's not like that. It doesn't sound like that. Um, Len so. Uard Cohen. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. 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 Yeah. So. We have ample evidence of of music and its uses um, from, you know, we got like half a million cuneiform tablets. That's not nothing. So they t- <laughs> yep. And so they, and all of them are receipts for beer. Um, <laughs> and they tell us all about the uses of music in um, in Sumer and the city-states, in, all over Babylonia, Syria, and up all around, everywhere else. Um, everywhere that had cuneiform tablets talking about stuff. Music came up, I'm guessing. Um, so we also have pictorial representations of musical instruments, singers, and religious and sort of more magical rituals. We got dancers and acrobats and sports. Um, and so all of these kind of speak to the importance of music in ancient societies. Um, and then we've got these these um, stringed instruments. Thank you. Instruments is the word I was looking for um, at, at or. And so we've got a, another dimension. And so um, there are 11 in total, mm-hmm. they think, from I mean, or. Best guess. I, they're pretty, pretty confident. MNI 11. <laughs> um, oh, boy. And so Deep cuts. If, it weren't for, if it weren't for the two harps and the nine lyres, we wouldn't have any actual stringed instruments from this corner of the world in this time. So cool. Which is pretty incredible. Yeah. Um, and so the the ore graves also yielded a pair of silver wind instruments mm. um, and a small number of other types of instruments. I think like, like little think. little um like little percussion things and oh, I was like sistrums and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> um, and one big old bass guitar. Yeah, I think like sort of like castanet guys. Yeah. Um, and then there are a few other prehistoric Mesopotamian sites that give us fragments of bone wind instruments. But now that we have a sense of what was going on, re these harps. I want to talk about music. At all. 
Anna. Okay, good. (laughs) So among the many cuneiform tablets that have been studied, many, 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 um, there's a small number of texts relating to the tuning and playing of ancient instruments. So they came with, they came with practice books. Um, So, gosh, those sound boring. Yeah. I mean, they're boring enough in a language I do understand. Um, So, so far, cuneiformists have identified 10 Mesopotamian tablets that contain technical information about ancient musical scales. It's sort of comforting to know. They're just lists. It's like, it it is just lists. Second string, <laughs> third string. No, it's it's about how the string scales broken. Like there are there okay. are numbers of different scales even today in Western and Eastern musical traditions. Um, but also, it's sort of comforting to know that music students, even five thousand or so years ago, had to practice their scales. It's kind of like, oh, everybody hates it. So we now know that by the old Babylonian period in ancient Iraq, so around eighteen hundred BCE, or about 850 years after the period of the Royal Cemetery of Ur, there existed standardized tuning procedures consisting of seven different and interrelated scales. So that's like... How many do we have? I think seven. Because there's Mixolydian, Aeolian... No, those are modes. Major, minor... What? I took music theory one time. What is any of this? There are... So in music, there are... I took music appreciation, and all I learned was that Franz Liszt was super hot. He was. Ladies loved him. And And then he loved God more. He did. That's a different story. Um, Although Sumerians, they loved a list. Oh, my God. (laughs) Do I have to leave? So, um, yes, I think there are still in, in Western music, there are still seven scales. And the the really cool thing is that the seven, um, Mesopotamian scales can be equated with the seven ancient Greek scales, um, that date to around 1400 years later. The one, and even one of these scales, um, that is in common between Babylonian and Greek music is common to ours. It's the, the modern major scale. So the one that goes do, re, mi. Da, 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 da. That's a major scale. And what are these seven? What are these six other ones? You've got like major, minor what? scale. You can have the pentatonic scale. What? It's different isn't sequences that a, of. Isn't that a acapella group? It's called pentatonics because there are five of them. But the pentatonic scale is is what the blues I are based it was on. A religious thing? No, not like pentateuch. No, <laughs> that's different, bud. Okay. The, the point is that there are, so a scale is going from, so the, the notes are A, B, C, D, E, F, G, uh-huh. right? So if okay. I were to go from A to A, so a lower A to a higher A, that is an octave. If I were to play all the notes between A and A, I would be playing a scale, right? That's a scale. Yeah. There are also accidentals, which is the sharps and flats. So A sharp... C sharp when you go it's so it's patterns of whole and half steps getting to between A and A right so going do re mi is using whole steps when you do a minor scale you do different patterns of whole and half and so different scales are different patterns of whole and half steps between the lower and the higher note of the octave so there are seven of these patterns in ancient Mesopotamian music so seven different iterations of notes getting you from one end to the other of an octave. 
cuneiformists have been working with musicologists, so that's probably a very small partnership, uh, but they've they've found terms on Akkadian tablets lists designating the names of the musical <laughs> strings, the names of the instruments and their parts. I told you. Yeah. First string, yep. second string. Yep. <laughs> uh, fingering <laughs> techniques, the names of musical intervals, so fifths and fourths and thirds and so, so like when you when you hit a chord you're doing you're playing different intervals right depending yes. on yeah so you put those intervals together they sound in different ways so talking about intervals um and the names of the seven scales which is why we know about those the instruments from or have a large enough number of strings because several of them have 11 one has 13 um for tuning intervals of fourths and fifths and to accommodate an octave. So we sort of know what the, um, what the range of these, uh, instruments would have been. Um, so we, we know that the octave was a thing in, in Mesopotamian music because when they talk about the numbered strings, it goes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and then goes back to one. So it, there's an understanding that the first note is the core on which the scale is built and so once you reach the octave, you're not counting up more. You're going back to one because it's the same note again. Right. Um, okay. And so so eight is one and nine is two. So it's the same note. It's recognized that it's the same note, just a higher octave. Early Mesopotamian representations of lyres show them with string numbers ranging from three to 12. So obviously the ones with three strings, no octaves there. And so people have been trying to recreate um, playable reconstructions of the or instruments so that they can hear what they would have sounded like. Um, research on the original wood fragments identify them as boxwood. Standard wood? Standard wood, yeah. Um, and so people have used, so boxwood is a conifer, and people have used other coniferous woods, and it's, apparently they produce very lovely, rich sounds. The largest lyre having the longest strings, so meaning it's in a deeper register, sounds a little bit like a, a bass viol or viol. So it's like a possibly lower than a cello. The medium-sized silver lyre has a sound reminiscent of a cello. Puabi's harp, uh, which I believe is the one with the bowl, sounds rather like a small guitar. There are three playable replicas that were made in Berkeley at the University of California by Emeritus Professor Robert Brown. None of the small lyres from Orr have been reconstructed, as far as we know, but in all likelihood, <laughs> someone in some basement somewhere maybe is like... Oh, Woodcrafting, right. a beautiful thing. Um, based on the relative string lengths, though, we can imagine that they would have sounded similar to Puabi's harp, so kind of in the same uh, aud aud audio. <laughs> oh, man, audible. I was like, seeing but for ears <laughs> in the same register as a guitar. Ooh. So um, speaking of these reproductions, there was one that I saw a brief news blurb on the lyre of Ur being reproduced in 2005 by a team of Liverpool engineers. And the focus of the article wasn't so much on the reconstruction of the harp or like what it sounded like, but how stoked they were that they <laughs> were able to engrave things on the harp with lasers. So yeah. we can link to they that. They were like, yeah, there's like, it's like old and stuff, but these lasers we did such a good job on these shells with our lasers um so we're gonna link to that article in the show notes <laughs> it's not as relevant here but and also the the liar uh-huh oh yeah and also yeah so um 
I will read this part. So Andy Lowings is a one of the coordinators of this Liverpool laser harp project. Um, and he's also a harp enthusiast, as, as he is designated. Not a laser enthusiast. No, no he's, he's... That's everyone else on this he's project. He's much more into... He's in it for the harps. Um, but he is a musician and a harpist. And he... Uh, we've got a clip... You could say his harp's in the right place. Oh. <laughs> um there we have a video of him accompanying a musician named Steph Connor who learned um ancient sumerian and used it to recreate some uh, recreate uh, to create some um some songs so that we have a clip of him accompanying her on the harp and it's interesting we'll let you listen to it listeners and form your own opinions um, those of you watching this video can see what Amber's opinion is on her face, but, um, so it's like, it's just her singing. It's, it's like original content. Yeah. The lyre that was created by the Liverpool team has also been played by musicians from around the globe at several high profile events, including the Live Aid Eden Project and the Edinburgh International Harp Festival. <laughs> you made it, kid. I'm going to tell you about Queen Puabi and some other dudes. Mm-hmm. There are three royals buried in the royal cemetery there. Yeah, like you um, do. Whose names we know, and those names are Puabi, Muskalam Dug, and Akalam Dug. We know their names um, because the name is either like on the back of the helmet, like <laughs> his mom put it there, or something. I was going to say, um, did his mom put this stuff? So it doesn't get like mixed up in the laundry. Oh. Um, and then also we know their names from, from the cylinder seals. So the cylinder seals tell us a lot about, they can tell us, we've talked about this before. We specifically talked about this in our Ancient Aliens episode where um, you can you can gain some insight by what uh, flora and fauna is featured, but also by what's written around individuals. You can see people like partying. Um, you can see people... Um, engaged in conversation with gods and things. Um, but the cylinder seals, Puabi's cylinder seal and some of the other items that were found at the Royal Tombs of Or, um, are in the corpus of evidence, um, used by Zechariah Sitchin to promote his ancient aliens hypothesis, yeah, which so remember more on that, listen to our episode, which remember, yeah, you can listen to our episode on Patreon, but, um, Spoiler alert, Zechariah Sitchin did not learn how to read Sumerian. Nope. As for the getup that Queen Puabi was wearing, remember she had her like... She got her, her fancy dress on. She had her day look and her night look. Mm -hmm. So this is pulled from um, Art of the Ancient Near East. Mm -hmm. which is, this is the the resources for educators. Yeah, this is the Brazil yeah. mm -hmm. at all. Yeah. Um <clears throat> Uh, Queen Puabi's regalia. The materials used in art of the ancient Near East were deliberately chosen with features such as color and hardness as deciding factors. Gold and silver were considered to have specific magical and apotropaic properties, meaning um, they can ward off evil. Mm -hmm. um, as did the lapis lazuli and carnelian stones that they were most frequently combined with to create objects and ornaments. Precious metals were referenced in mythological literature to convey concepts and attributes associated with deities, primarily because their color, shine, and brilliance were deemed fitting for gods and goddesses. So shiny. Mm-hmm. Queen Puabi was buried in a gold headdress decorated with lapis lazuli and carnelian. 
It's super beautiful. Yeah. It's so beautiful. Yeah, we'll put we'll um, put pictures on our social media. Yeah. And so there's rows of overlapping leaves made of sheet gold with gold ribbon loops at the sides and a flower or kind of a star diadem on the top. That's kind of silly looking, but it like comes up and it's like I'm sure it looked beautiful. Oh. Yeah. No, I'm sure it was very striking. Um <laughs> but it was do that all the time. <laughs> um and so not only was she like she was dolled up so you know how in ariana grande's new single seven rings she's like i see it i want it i like i like it i get it like right this is what this is like seven rings she saw it she liked it she she wanted it it was her yeah she she got it yeah yeah so yeah probably got really more, like, more like ariana grande uh, yeah, she has a, a tattoo in cuneiform that says like pig barbecue, <laughs> piglet barbecue on her palm. Um, so the amount of grave goods <laughs> The amount of grave goods found in Puabi's tomb was staggering. An abundance of silver, lapis lazuli, and golden rings and bracelets. More than seven. She had ten. ten plus seven. She had a ring on every finger. When she was buried. Ten rings. Take that, Ariana. <laughs> a magnificent... Okay, we get it. Uh, so she had her headdress with the with the leaves. Yep. Um, a superb liar, um, complete with the... Also, Ariana Grande. Uh, complete with the golden and lapis lazuli encrusted... <laughs> <laughs> I love her. Um, the golden and lapis lazuli encrusted bearded bull's head. It's like super gorgeous. Also, great golden tableware. Um, gold, carnelian, and cylindrical beads for extravagant necklaces and belts. Um, so we they wouldn't have been necklaces; they would have been piles of beads at this point. Right, the it's something gone. that people that people don't always realize, especially when you go and look at it at a museum and you don't have context. Like that's what they're assuming it would have looked. They're like. taking their or best might have shot looked. at a it's like a. Um, it's like when you get a freezer meal and it's in like a bowl on the cover and it's like all gorgeous and steaming. And it's like it. serving suggestion. <laughs> yeah. So it's like that. Uh, this is a serving suggestion. Um, and so it would have been necklaces or belts or bracelets or like Stuff. dangly earrings. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just yeah. Pile. Maybe she just had piles of beads. She could have been a crafter. I don't know. And a chariot adorned with lionesses heads in silver. Super gorgeous. Um, when... When Puabi was found on her fingers were 10 rings. And she said, you like my hair? Gee, thanks. Just bought it. <laughs> Bring in the pop culture. Okay. Um, <laughs> so there's another cool thing about uh, Puabi's jewelry, besides how totes gorge it is, which is that um, it may be a clue to where she was from. So the carnelian beads in particular um, are in two types so that the, shape of the beads and the way that they're carved are of two particular types linked to India or the Indus Valley. So it's possible that Puabi was from around there and she had sort of brought the jewelry with her in her trousseau. But um, it also might be possible that this was evidence of increased trade between Ur and the Indus region, which could also be a factor, like if, if Puabi was from there and... Yeah, because she probably, like, didn't meet a, a nice boy from Ur, like, when she was doing a semester abroad. Right. Like, no, she probably she, was, she was... It was an alliance marriage. Yeah. Yeah. So she was part of the trade 
she came with or her beads. Or the stuff she was wearing was part of trade. Right. I just had to point out that nobody could fall in love and be happily ever after. Not that we know of. Come on, sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the great death pit, sunshine. Yeah, let's, let's get on to like... All right. Well, got to stay on brand. Let's talk about the Great Death Pit. Um, remember when I said we gave our boy Wooly credit for being a modern archaeologist and using his methodical excavation and detailed notes to reconstruct what life was like we were back doing, in ancient Mesopotamia? We so well. And made him, a, made him a real trailblazer for modern archaeology? Well, I'm going to read from um, his book, The Royal Cemetery, mm. or Excavations Volume 2. Mm-hmm. And you'll see that maybe it's less reconstruction and more wild conjecture. Quote. We must imagine the burial in the chamber to be complete and the door sealed. There remains the open pit with its matte-lined walls and matte-colored floor. Wouldn't that be great if everybody's name was Matt? (laughs) Empty and unfurnished. Now down the sloping passage comes a procession of people, the members of the court, soldiers, men servants, and women. The latter all in their finery of brightly colored garments and headdresses of lapis lazuli and silver and gold, and with them musicians bearing harps or lyres, cymbals, and sistra. They take up their positions in the farther part of the pit, and then there are driven or backed down the slope the chariots drawn by oxen or by asses, the drivers in the cars, the grooms holding the heads of the draft animals, and these two are marshaled into the pit. Each man and woman brought a little cup of clay or stone or metal, the only equipment required for the rite that was to follow. Some kind of service there must have been at the bottom of the shaft. At least it is evident that the musicians played up to the last and that each drank from the cup. Either they brought the potion with them or they found it prepared for them on the spot. In PG 1237, there was in the middle of the pit a great copper pot into which they could have dipped and they composed themselves for death. Then someone came down and killed all the animals and perhaps arranged the drugged bodies. And when that was done, earth was flung from above on them and the filling in of the grave shaft was begun. I mean, say what you will about his his uh, failure to be accurate. He tells a great story. Yeah, that's a great story. That's really awesome. Um, that's super not what happened, though. Yes. Would you um, like to know what happened? <laughs> even before they found a random skeleton in the basement of the Penn Museum, um, they did have a sense of like what was going on. Uh-huh. Mostly like they didn't have cups everywhere. And so some science shows that maybe um, they weren't sipping the flavor aid. Uh-uh. It's science o'clock. Um, okay. On brand for the dirt, but we start with some serendipitous coincidence. In the summer of 2014, Penn Museum scholars working on the Ur digitization project, researching and digitizing excavation re- records from Woolley's expedition, made a spectacular discovery in the museum basement. It's not a discovery so much as like, oh, that's where that is. Um, it yeah, was so they're looking. They're like scanning documents. <laughs> they found a box, <laughs> and it has some bones. It was a 6,500-year-old skeleton from the site of Ur, preserved at the museum for 85 years, but with all trace of its identifying documentation gone, which is ironic because it was with all the documents. (laughs) Physical anthropology curator and keeper Janet Monge knew that a second box without documentation was nearby, and based on the evidence from the project, in all likelihood, it was a second ancient skeleton from the site. 
Prior to opening the second box, Dr. Monge was hoping, hoping, oh boy, was hoping to x-ray it in the museum's new x-ray room, but the size <laughs> and bulk of the box Which made they that got, problematic. Just in case they find. <laughs> for all your mystery boxes. So that project was put on hold because it was too big for the x-ray. Finally, Dr. Monge, with the help of graduate student and collections assistant Paul Mitchell, used a crowbar <laughs> to open the box and confirm that it was, indeed, the second and final skeleton from Ur that had lost its passport when it was moved into storage. Penn made a class out of this, which just, is they were amazing. Like, oh. um, so it, as an introduction to the field of bioarchaeology. And so the idea is, what do you do when you find a new skeleton? Um, and so they, they sort of lay out the, the long-term research project and carry it out. So first, uh, this is a quote from Janet Monge, is the determination of the archaeological context from archival records of the excavation, which is what the digitization project was kind of already doing. From this framework, the students can propose ap appropriate hypotheses to test with the skeleton using technical techniques of skeletal analysis, including x-ray and CT scan imaging and sampling strategies for isotopic diet research, to name just a few. So um, I then found an article <laughs> titled... This is, the, this is the thing that I knew about because yeah. I, was, I was taking classes in that department at mm. the time that this was happening, and everyone's like... Did you hear what Janet did? <laughs> and then a few years later, they were like, did you hear what Janet did? And it was like, good grief. So tell me. Tell oh, the, the article is called, quote, scanning the deadheads. Leonard Woolley did save a few skeletons from his excavations. Like, I don't know what he was doing with all those bodies. Just like. Like, like in addition to the, the two random ones that they found. Yeah. Like there were 400 something burials, right? No, but like, but like. Did he save other ones too? Yeah. Yes. Just, um, okay. Well, okay. So because remember, they didn't know about this one. Right. Um, well, it's not saving so much as what what this article called consolidating the crushed skulls of soldiers from one of the pits and some females from another pit and using wax to lift them with their helmets and jewelry intact, which is a cool idea. It's a good idea, but yeah. uh, so um, very modern, indeed. So um, forensic examination of these two skulls, the, the male soldier and the female, they underwent forensic examination to determine if there was cause of death evidence um, on their well, skeletons. Okay. Cause of death, not just death. Like they're clearly they're, dead. This one. <laughs> so they used um, CT scans, which CT stands for computed tomography. And it's basically... That's what my brother does. Yeah. It's basically uh, repeated slices, photographic slices of of an object. Um, and it was done at the hospital of the university of Pennsylvania. And it shows that both of these skulls have perimortem fractures. So that means a fracture occurring around the time of death. And these fractures include circular holes representing blunt force trauma caused by a blow to the back of the head, which was the probable cause of death. So rather than dying willingly by drinking some quote, deadly or soporific drug, as Woolley suggested, the two attendants in the Penn Museum collection were violently killed. That, which is not to say that they weren't willing. Like we don't really know the, the context. Well, and, and willing also might not have come into the equation. Right. In any case, they were killed with a heavy pointed instrument. The CT scans also revealed that the body of the female had been exposed to heat before burial and treated with mercury sulfide. This would have been sort of a uh, an not a non-embalming fluid way of 
of treating the body to delay decomposition, suggesting that the attendant's bodies might have remained unburied after they died, probably for lengthy funerary ceremonies. So it wasn't so much that they died and then immediately thereafter they were arranged and dirt thrown over them. They, there may have been lengthy, lengthy uh, rituals involved. And so here is um, a segment from the article written up by uh, Janet Monge, which was in the journal Antiquity. The blunt force trauma was probably inflicted using an instrument with a small pointed striking end and sufficient weight to have penetrated the skull. Um, thrusting weapons such as daggers, swords, spears, or lances could not have been effective at close range, and pear-shaped stone maces, such as those recovered from other contemporary archaeological contexts, such as Kafaja in the Diyala region of Iraq, would have crushed rather than penetrated the skull. The weapon would more likely have been something similar to a copper, quote, battle axe with a long spike on one end found in a slightly later grave in the royal cemetery. Um, so it describes, the article goes on to describe this particular battle axe, and it also resembles weapons depicted on Akkadian cylinder seals and um, some of those recovered from contemporary sites in Syria and Iran. So if this indeed was the instrument used to inflict these wounds, in all likelihood, as shown in the cylinder seal impressions, the axe would have been hafted to take advantage. It wasn't just that someone with their hand on the on the axe part just going chunk. It would have been hafted to take advantage of the leverage it would provide when the fatal blow was delivered. While a pickaxe is the most likely candidate, okay, pickaxe, it's like an axe blade with a spike on the other side. It is difficult to determine with like precision. Like a fireman's axe. Yeah, exactly. It is difficult to determine with precision the types and varieties of weapons used to produce either blunt or sharp force trauma on archaeological specimens because, you know, they, they were buried, so their skulls were crushed. So they had to reconstruct yeah. the skull before they could analyze it. And then, you know, it's an imperfect uh, picture of what happened. Yeah. And so I'm going to give you one last little quote from our boy Rofe. Not everyone agrees with Woolley that his so-called royal tombs were the graves of the rulers of Or and his close family. Some think that they contain the ritually slaughtered victims of some religious ceremony. The custom of royal burial with sacrificial victims is attested in several parts of the world. For example, in early dynastic Egypt and later in the Sudan, in Shang, China, and in Melanesia in the 13th century AD. Oh. But in Mesopotamia, there is little evidence for it apart from the royal cemetery. So this is weird. Yeah. It's out of out of uh, the ordinary for the area, huh? That yeah. That is weird. So this is, yeah. So and nobody it's so, understands it. Nobody understands it. We don't. I Leonard Woolley definitely didn't. <laughs> he tried. And so it's, this is a, there are so many other th like things about um, the royal tombs of war um, that are so fascinating. There's absolutely gorgeous art. Like, yeah. Uh, well, well, not even art, like visual culture. So things that were useful, but material. are pretty yeah. to yeah, us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So like really, really gorgeous stuff. And there's just so, so much, like so many directions you can go in terms of like, Trying to understand like, what any was of it. going on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, like, is like, so this whole idea of if Puabi is from the Indus Valley, is Harappa, this like some maybe? weird thing that she brought? Like, oh, is interesting. It, so, is it like, you know, is that her idea? Yeah. So, what was going on? What's happening? And really, like, this might not have too much connection to concepts of kingship in this. In, mm this space um and so yeah it's just like a 
It's a cool mystery. It's a, a weird thing that's super metal. And <laughs> um, I totally recommend that our listeners look into it. Yeah, check out our, our reading list in our show notes. And there will be lots and lots of uh, material there for you to jump off from if you're interested. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. We will be back in your ears soon. And you can put us there via SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or the podcast platform of your choosing. Yep. And you can follow us over on Facebook at The Dirt Podcast. On Twitter, we're at Dirt Podcast. And on Instagram, we're at The Dirt Pod. Yep. And you can and s- so you can see you can see some of the the stuff from or there. Mm-hmm. Yes, and you can see all of those social media accounts together at thedirtpod.com. And if you have questions or thoughts or you want to know more about something we've talked about on the podcast, you can email us at thedirtpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please consider leaving a review on your favorite podcasting app. You could also consider becoming a member so we can keep content like this free and available to all. Check out pricing and info at arcpodnet.com slash members. Thanks again and have a great day.